you guys, some of you that are commercial watchers, you may not be that interested in who wins the Super Bowl, but um, I know somebody is. He's a good friend of yours and mine, and he is kicking off our new series on Philippians. We're starting this week. It's called In Pursuit, and today's uh, teaching is called Praying for You. So let's welcome up Dick Foth with first. Uh, yeah, we're going to give him a woo, and then we're going to clap. Thanks, dude. Okay, here's the deal. I grew up in Oakland, California in the 50s. The Oakland Raiders were not even a figment of somebody's imagination. But there was this other team across the bay. So there you go. That's where that is. So um, Philippians is the letter we're going to be looking at for the next eight weeks, and I get to kick it off. I love Philippians. It's an encouraging uh, letter. It's a reality check on a number of things. You know, reality checks are good once in a while. Well, you know, Pastor Jeff gets up here and he tells these crazy things that happen to him. Always, um, always funny, often self-deprecating. So I, I thought I'd just share one of those real quickly. I, was, I spoke at a, at a university students retreat, 250 students in the big sky country, a couple of weeks ago, five sessions. Sunday night got done, folks lined up. We, they, some came up and hugged and said, you're the grandpa we never had and all that stuff. And this one kid came up and he said, you know, I have real trouble paying attention. And he said, but you kept me engaged for all five sessions. I said, well, thank you. And he said, and I'm a cynic. I don't laugh at stuff. But he said, you actually sort of had me laughing a few times. I said, well, thank you very much. He said, I did just want to say uh, that, that up close, though, you look a lot older than when you're up on the stage. <laughs> I said, well, that, that's why I stay up on the stage so much, because you get close and it's all over. So we need a reality check once in a while. This week might have been one of those. This, this was a tough week. A week ago, about now, a helicopter went down in Calabasas in the southern range of Southern California, the mountain range, and nine lives were lost. Family, several families devastated by that. And then we have those impeachment proceedings going on in Washington, D.C. that at least illustrates divided politics, maybe divided nation at some level. And then there's the coronavirus in China that's already killed 219 people, and people are anxious about that. And then there was an earthquake in Turkey that killed 36 people and 1,600 injured. All four of those things have something in common. What they have in common is prayer. When the helicopter went down, Twitter blew up with hundreds of people, maybe thousands, saying our thoughts and prayers are with you. If you watch the impeachment proceedings, you saw our friend Barry Black, chaplain of the Senate, at each session. You say, this, it puts me in tension when I see all that stuff. People praying around the world. What is it about prayer? What, what is that? Why do we sort of instinctively go there? So um, that's what I want to talk about. Over these next eight weeks, we're going to be reading somebody else's mail. Okay, this is a letter not to us first, it was to somebody else, but, we, but they want us to read it, right? And it's not to a person, it's to a community. But it feels like it's for a person, the way it's written. And a prayer is at the heart of it, that's why we're calling this praying for you. By the way, when you came in or down the, both these halls, there were some banners. Anybody see the banners hanging from the rafters? 
if, if you want the letter to Philippians in a nutshell, that's it. At the heart of Philippians, it's not the part I'm speaking to today, but in chapter 2, the heart of Philippians is what is called the Messiah poem. It's a, it's a poem about Jesus, and the other pieces that go around it, of which I have one of them this morning, sort of frame that. And this is the poem. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read the first line of the poem in Philippians 2.5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's how it starts. And then the next verses go on to tell you what that mindset is. And when you read it, it says essentially this. Who even though he was God, did not think it was advantage for him to hang on to that, but that he would come to earth, take on human form, die a criminal's death so that all of us could be redeemed. That's the, that's the heart of the Messiah poem. And Paul, in writing to the Philippians and in all of his letters, has this sort of thought, but this one in particular. Paul saw himself, like Jesus, as laying down his life for others. And he encourages others to do the same. So that's the sense you get when you read this letter. And I'm going to take a little more time at the front end of my message simply because I'm teeing things up for the next eight weeks, okay? And so Paul, you know, many of you know his story. Here's, here's this guy who in his day was sort of a religious terrorist. He would in, imprison and kill people in the name of God. And he had an encounter on his way to take some folks out and I don't mean for lunch, take him out in, he was on his way to Damascus, Syria in an encounter with Jesus. And he had this conversation with him and it totally transformed his life, absolutely transformed his life. And the word to him from one of, of God's prophets, Ananias, was you are to go to the Gentiles and their kings and to the house of Israel. And I don't know if that was in order, but the bulk of Paul's mission over the years that you read in the book of Acts in the, in the New Testament has to do with going west to where large groups of Gentiles were. And a Gentile simply is a non-Jewish person. In, in, in Hebrew, it would be a goy. I'm a goy. See, it's a goyim. That's a whole bunch of us. And so Paul was sent to Gentiles. And he took three, three trips through the northern Mediterranean area. And the the second one was in 51 AD, and that's when he went to Philippi. So he starts out in Antioch, and he's sent by the church. He and Silas went by the church up through Derby and Lystra. When he came through those areas, there was a, a young kid, a young guy, had potential. His name was Timothy. He picked up Timothy there, and then they came across, went to Troas over there on the Aegean Sea. So what you see as Asia Minor would be modern-day Turkey. Much of it would be modern-day Turkey. He comes to Troas, has a vision of a man saying, come to Macedonia and help us. That's where Philippi is. They go across to Macedonia, which is north of Greece. And Philippi is the first city in what we would call today Europe, where the gospel came. In, in, in a significant way, because of Philippi and what happened there, we sit in Fort Collins this morning. Because that's the way the gospel came. And then you see the rest of his trip and back to Antioch. The team that he had with him at that time was Silas, this young man, Timothy, and Dr. Luke. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so he's writing this in the book of Acts. Now, I'm not talking about Philippians' letter now. Because in order to understand the Philippians' letter best, you need to have the backstory 
of actually what happened in Philippi. This is 51 AD. The letter is written 10 years later by Paul from Rome. Now, Paul, in his travels, he, um, he tends to cause riots. You know, <laughs> he, he, he walks into a Roman colony where they say there is no king but Caesar. And Paul says, well, <clears throat> actually there is. And like he's bigger and he's better and his name is Jesus. Well, that just caused a big stir. Every town he went to, that just got... And oftentimes he would end up in prison. I go to places and talk and they put me in Hampton Inn and he goes to places and they put him in prison. So, so he's in prison in Rome 10 years after he went to Philippi. So about 61 AD. This is a picture of that prison. It's called the Mamertine Prison. I was there a couple of years ago. They've cleaned it up a bit because it was a horrific place. But that's where he was for a couple of years. And he died a few years after the letter to the Philippians was written. So that's the 30,000-foot view. I want to take just a few moments and give you the up-close personal view of what actually happened in Philippi. Now, you can read this in Acts 16. Okay, You can go there and read it. I encourage you to do that. But just for fun this morning, I'd like to take a little different approach. Back in the 1940s in Washington, D.C., they had a young Scot who came to New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. His name was Peter Marshall. He became chaplain of the Senate for a couple of years, died early at the age of 46 of a heart attack. But he, was, he took D.C. by storm in part because of the way he preached. Because oftentimes he would create what he called biblical newsreels. He would take a, a piece of the gospel and he would elaborate it, imagine what it might have been like. And so this morning, I'd like to imagine what it might have been like in Philippi in 51 A.D. when Paul came through. So when I put this hat on, it's not going to be Foth. It'll be somebody else. My name is Marcus. I'm 22 years old. I'm a soldier in the Roman army. We have a big garrison here. This is an area that uh, has been a colony for a long time. Soldiers have been posted here a long time. And uh, my dad's retired here. He's a former soldier. And he hangs out. This is a very fertile agricultural area. They even have gold mines around here. And we're only 10 miles from the Aegean Sea. So if you want to take three or four days, go fishing. Good place to go. But um, I'm a soldier just like my dad. But 10 years ago, I was 12. And Paul came to our city. And uh, my dad at that time, and he, Paul stayed about three months actually. But my dad at that time was the, um, was the jailer in the prison here in the garrison. And um, so we just, we hung out. I was 12, I had two or three buddies and we just, and when Paul came, he was sort of stirring things up and you know, it was kind of cool when you're 12 years old. So I just, I just followed around with my buddies and, and he met this, uh, this woman, this businesswoman who sold purple cloth. She was from Asia Minor in Thyatira and they're, they're famous for their purple cloth and purple's a big color in the Roman Empire. It, like it wasn't, top quality cloth, but sort of mid-range, but a lot of people bought it. I think my mom probably bought stuff from her. And uh, so she was a God-fearer, and when she heard about Jesus is God, she believed what Paul said, opened her heart, and opened her house, and said, why don't you come have your gatherings here? And so they started a house church in, in Lydia's house. And a lot of crazy stuff happened when Paul... One was there was this young girl that kept following around. Now, this girl had a spirit of some kind. Or they said it was a spirit of divination. She would tell fortunes. And in our part of the world, oracles and fortune tellers were a big deal. And so this girl 
uh, not possessed by God, but I think by a, a devil or something. She, she would tell these fortunes. She started following him around and saying, you need to believe these guys. Well, you really don't need that kind of PR. And so one day, Paul just turned around and, and rebuked the spirit, cast it out of her. And she was a weird girl. And bam, she changed in a moment. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And, and it, but what happened was the guys who owned her, they owned other girls. Like, I think they call that trafficking. And, they, and, they, and it just took away their, their, their base of money. Their whole economic thing went out the window, and they were ticked. And so they started telling the city leaders, these guys are coming to town, and they're saying things that overthrow Roman traditions. They're not some of us. We need to put them in jail. And so they took them to the public square and beat the tar out of them, just beat them bloody, and then threw them in the inner dungeon. And my dad was in charge when they put him in there. He said, what happened next that night blew my mind. I, it, changed, it changed our family's whole life. I'll never forget it. Our house was right sort of up against the jail. And in the middle of the night, like it had to be late, it had to be after midnight. I'm in bed and I hear these voices and these guys, Paul and Silas, are praying and they're praying in Greek, which is sort of our language. I guess they could pray in Hebrew too. And, and, uh, and then they start singing. They're singing at the top of their lungs in the inner dungeon. It's a terrible place. There's human excrement. There's rats crawling across them. Their feet are in stocks. They're chained to the wall. And they're singing songs of praise to God. It was great. And the next thing I know is like a giant fist hitting the house. Bam! It hit the, and we have earthquakes in our area. It's, it's earthquake prone up there in Turkey in our part of the world or Asia Minor, our part of the world. And, and I've had earthquake. I've been through earthquake. But this one was horrific. And I about fell out of bed. And my dad woke up and he jumped up and he ran down because the doors were flying open in the jail. And, you know, the, the, the chains had come out of the walls. And these guys had been singing. And my dad ran in. I don't know how how Paul and Silas knew that he was there, but he knew, my dad knew, he told me this later, that he was a dead man. Because if these guys got away, the Roman authorities would kill him. Wouldn't just end his career, end his life. And he, apparently, Paul must have heard him pull a sword out or something because Paul shouted, don't, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Nobody's left. And he said, my dad said he was just shaking. The earth was shaking, but he said, my dad said he was shaking. And he got these guys out and he asked them this question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus. My mom and dad took him out and they washed their wounds with all that junk and crud in them and put oil in there. And uh, my dad said, this is the God we're following. And my brother and my sister and I and my parents that night were baptized. <laughs> I love baptisms. He said, I'll never forget it. They took us out in the garrison yard where they had horse troughs for the officers' uh, horses, and they baptized us in the horse trough. And it changed everything, everything. The next day, the leaders of the city who had put him in there sent word down, let those guys go. And Paul, he's, he's a studly guy. He is one tough dude. He said, no, we're Roman citizens. You put us in here wrongly. You beat us wrongly. You're going to come and you're going to walk us out of town. That's what you're going to do. It was so cool. My buddies and I were sort of, yes, you know. You're just. And then they left. Our family has been in Lydia's house church for the last 10 years. 
It's been cool. A couple of my buddies actually have started following Jesus with me. And uh, last year we heard that Paul was in prison again in Rome. And we sent one of our guys down to help him. His name's Epaphroditus. He almost, he, Epaphroditus got sick, almost died there. But he's better now. And he came back just the other day and he brought this letter with him from Paul and Timothy. Let, let's see what it says. It says, um, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Yeah. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. That's us at Philippi. Together with overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that just sounds like him. Just sounds like him. Marcus is gone. Foth is back. Okay? The, the letter to the Philippians is one of gratitude. It's one of gratitude. It's a, it's a call for them to be together in the spirit of Jesus. The goal of them being together is this fellowship. There's a word that's used there. It's koinonia. It's a Greek word that means to be committed to each other and to the mission. And when you read the letter, as you'll see in a moment, it begins and ends with prayer. What makes for fellowship? What makes for us being together? Well, it's being in the presence of God together. It's talking to God about each other in a positive way. It has that peace to it. Begins and ends with prayer. So often I have conversations and we'll get done and I'll say, praying for you. I, ha I have a confession to make. Sometimes I haven't. I didn't mean not to, but I, I just forgot. It's just sort of when I, I meant it at, like, at that moment, but I didn't really. Well, and it was sort of a comma instead of a covenant. You guys probably never done that, but I, I, on occasion I've done that and I feel bad about it. And uh, it's in my heart as we open this letter that, that praying for you is not simply a comma or a, a space, but that it's actually a covenant. And the question is, how do we get there? So let's look at the text. Let's look at the letter. This is how it reads. You already read this part. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to God's holy people in Christ Jesus, at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the plurals. Paul and Timothy, together, overseers and deacons, grace and peace, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this sense that when you do this, it has more power and it expresses the reality of how life works. So Paul and Timothy model together. And then he goes on to say... I thank my God every time I remember you. Gratitude is at the heart of the kingdom. Gratitude is at the heart of life. If you're grateful, you live longer. All the studies show that. If you heard me talk back at Thanksgiving, I told you about my friend when I say, how are you doing? He always says, alive and grateful. That's what Paul's saying. I'm alive and grateful for you. I thank my God every time I remember you because he's got history with him. It's a decade old, but he's got history with him. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership. That's that word fellowship. Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He said, 10 years you've been working at this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, which is a plural. You don't know whether it's plural or singular unless you know the, con the context of the sentence determines whether it's a plural. This is a plural. 
that, that God will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul has the end game in mind. He's, he says life, he's saying, I think life is a trajectory. It's not just a moment. It's a bunch of moments, not just minutes, but it's this arc of our lives. Some of you who are sitting here this morning can't believe you're sitting here because five years ago, you wouldn't be anywhere near a place like this with people like that. You just wouldn't. But you had one of those Philippi moments, changed everything. And here you are. And Paul has that in mind. He prays for them. He's praying for his friends, okay? He's not praying for somebody who's dying or something. He's just praying for his friends. When I was a young pastor at the University of Illinois some time back, we had Sunday night services. And we had, it was a, just a growing small congregation. It had a couple hundred folks. And sometimes we would take what we call prayer requests. Some of you are old enough to remember those kinds of meetings. And so I, uh, I said, there are any prayer needs tonight? And young Jim White, who was sitting about right here, second or third row, he's 25 years old, a new believer, said, I'd like to pray for Paul Todd. Well, Paul Todd was like 65 years old. And he, Jim, had gone to one of these breakfasts, like it's going to be next Saturday, the men's breakfast, and met Paul Todd. And they became friends. And it was like father-son. Paul Todd had been a tank commander in the Second World War under George Patton. He had fought from North Africa up through Italy, France, into Germany. Four years in, he was blown out of his tank, spent 13 months in a hospital, had shrapnel wounds and other things. And by today's standards, I'm sure it would be PTSD. And so I'm asking Jim, I said, well, is, is, uh, is Paul back in the hospital? He said, no, I, I don't think so. I said, well, is he... Uh, like uh, struggling at home physically with some of the stuff that he said, no, I don't, I don't think so. I said, well, is he depressed? Is he? And I'm having this conversation in front of 200 people. And I, and I said, Jim, um, wh why do you want to pray for him? And he just grinned at me. He <laughs> said, well, I just like him. <laughs> well, see, that, that throws pastors off because you got to be dying of something. You know, I just, I wonder what would happen if we prayed for people we liked. I would submit that puts us together. That's what I would submit. And you have this, this idea. So those of you who are taking bulletin notes, now's the time, okay? And I want to say some things not about how prayer works. That may come later in this study. I want to talk to you about the nature of prayer. What do we mean when we say prayer? Because it sounds like a religious word. What do we mean when we say that, and what does it look like? So prayer... Is a conversation with the Almighty God. A conversation with the Almighty God. That's like a, a two-way street, right? Like a dialogue with the Almighty God. You say, why are you saying Almighty God? Well, because he's the Almighty God. Like he's the big one, right? The only one there is that lasts forever. That one. How I understand God is critical to my life. There's a, there's a fellow by the name of A.W. Tozer who's now gone on. But he said this, and I, I, I reflected on this for the last several weeks. This is what he said. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us about us. I think I might say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you come into your mind when you think about God, 
I'd just like to suggest you may be in trouble because you're not wired to be God, and I'm not wired to be God. I grew up in a congregation. It was a wonderful people, great hearts, but it was a pretty um, strict, and we had a lot of do's and don'ts, had a lot of checklists and stuff. It's hard to dance that fast, and it was just, you know, just a lot of that, and so a lot of times from the pulpit, I sort of got told what to do or not do, as the case may be. And so when I became a pastor, I mimicked that because that's my model. That's what I had. To end. But I was frustrated because the church was growing slowly. But, and the people were wonderful. But numbers of them weren't doing like what I told them to. <laughs> and one day I was whining to God because that's part of prayer. You can whine. And I... Uh, I, I wind up and I said, you know, God, I'm trying to do what I think you want me to do, but I'm telling them what to do because I think that's right, and, but they're not doing And I felt like he said this to me. It wasn't like a voice, but over time, through scripture and nudges and people's comments, I felt like he said, Foth, here's the deal. Why don't you stop telling those people what to do and start telling them who I am and let me tell them what to do? So, good deal. I'm out with the what to do part, and you just go with the who I am. And so for the last 40 years or 45 years, I've been talking way more about who this God is. Because when you catch an image of that God, the Philippians 2 God that lets go of his glory and comes and dies a criminal, horrific death so that I can have access, so that I can get in, takes all my crud and corruption and junk and says, why don't we swap it out? You give me all your garbage and I'll give you my joy and my peace and my holiness, all that. You know, that, that's the God I want to follow right there. He humbles himself and in so doing, he gives me access and I just want to be around him. When the helicopter crashed in Calabasas a week ago this morning, one of the people on the plane who was most well-known was an NBA basketball player now retired by the name of Kobe Bryant. If you, if you don't follow NBA basketball, he'd be a huge star like Mahomes is today, bigger than that, and, or whomever is playing today. In his early days, he had a rough time, gave others a rough time. Wasn't a great rep in that regard, but he played for the LA Lakers for 20 years. And when they interviewed basketball players, because now he's retired, dad, one of his daughters, 13 years old, who loved him and wanted to be like him, died in the crash with him. When they interviewed ball players, they said stuff like this. I just like being around him. Because he, he was a tremendous opponent, a tremendous competitor. I liked to just, I didn't even have to have a conversation. I just wanted to be in his presence. That's what prayer is. Prayer is wanting to be in the presence of the Most High God. And along the way, having conversations and we can let out emotions or, I mean, where is a safe place and a good place where I can just say anything? Because the one who I'm speaking to already knows what I'm going to say before the word is on my tongue. I don't get that, but it says that's what he says. Richard Foster has a book on prayer and he talks about the prayer of tears those broken and contrite prayers where we weep. Scripture says, blessed are those who mourn. And I, you know, I know my sins are forgiven, but there's, there's stuff I'm sure in the last couple of weeks or the last month where I've said things or done things that hurt people. And, I, and I, sometimes I blow it off, but maybe I need to be weeping over that. Maybe I need to be saying, God, I'm so sorry for that. I need to correct that. And the, and the harbored anger that I've had that I sort of 
gussy up over here and make it real pretty so I don't feel it like I used to. Or the, or the petty jealousies at work. I, I, need, I need to put that here. I need to weep over that and say, don't let me be that kind of person. Sometimes the irony of being with God is you can get mad. You say, really? He's saying that I can get mad with God? Well, some of us have. I have. Tony Hall, my congressman friend, I did the memorial service for his 15, their, Tony and Janet's 15-year-old son who died just before his 16th birthday of leukemia. And uh, this is a kid who went his mom, they knew he was passing away, and his mom said, what do you think about heaven? Are you, are you afraid about dying, Matt? And Matt said, well, I'm, I'm not afraid about dying, Mom. I don't, and I don't, I don't mind going to heaven, but isn't it, uh, isn't it mostly old people there? But when his boy died, Tony said there were, there were days when I'd stand in my house and I would rail at God. And I'd say, God, I prayed, I've served you. Why did you let that happen? And he said, I just, he said one day I said, just come down here. Let's fight it. I want to punch you in the face. And Tony's still around. Yeah. God didn't vaporize him. Because the almighty God can handle your puny anger easily. He gets anger. He knows what it's like to be angry. Certain things anger him, like the works of the enemy anger him. But there are times that just run the gamut of our emotions. I'm going to hurry along. And these are just takeaways about prayer. Prayer is reflex. Paul says, every time I remember, I think of you. I have a habit now. I think it's a habit. I'm in the car. I think of somebody, and I'll pick up the phone and call him. I'll, I'll pray. I'll just think of him and just say, God bless Fred Farkle or whatever his name is. And I'll just, you know, and I'll call him. I've done that for 25 years. I can't tell you how many times when the person answers said, and I say, I was just thinking of you. Just talk to the Lord about you a little on your behalf. And I just wanted to call you. I can't tell you how many times somebody will say, this is uncanny. I can't, just a half an hour ago, something happened. And I needed to know that God was real. And this is, I can't tell you how many times. So it's reflex. It's just what we do. It's, uh, Paul says, pray continually in 1 Thessalonians. Give thanks for all circumstances in everything that's going on. You know, just do that. It's intimate. Guys, sometimes we guys have a wee bit of trouble with thinking about an intimate God. You say, really? Because guys tend to, we, we, I think you ladies, and this is generalization, but I think you have it up on us because you can sit down and just start talking a lot of times face-to-face with people. And guys, oftentimes we have to do stuff side-by-side before we feel free to turn face-to-face and do it. And here is the God who wants me to be face-to-face with him. This is the God who wants me to share his life. This is how Paul says it. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. God can testify how, long, how I long for you all, long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is tough guy, Paul. This is the guy that gets beaten every time he goes into town. <laughs> He's a tough cat. And he's saying, but this is how I feel about you. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this letter, he uses personal pronouns a hundred times. This is not a long letter. A hundred times. I, me, us, you. Prayer concerned itself 
intimately with the deepest part of my person, my spirit. This body is going to fall off. It, I mean, it's already fading, right? But our spirits keep going. That's the piece of us that lasts forever. And when I, I can pray for healing for a leg, but we'll still die down the road. You know, that's how, or I pray for this. But, but when I say, Lord, give John a compassionate, tender heart. When I say, give, may your spirit rise up in Susanna in a way that is a light in a dark place. That's, that's touching one's spirit. Sometimes prayers that are intimate are so deep you don't have words for them. I've been at dozens of memorial services and somebody will walk up to the grieving person and they have not enough words or any words and they just put their arms around them and squeeze them and they go, hmm, hmm. Let go and walk away. Paul talks about groanings that cannot be uttered. God understands. Mm. He knows how to translate that. That's prayer at an intimate level. Praying for you. Mm. What I love is that prayer has no limits. I can, uh, I can pray any, anywhere. I have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, prison or out of prison, anywhere, anytime, any circumstances, anybody, any body position, any language, any length of prayer, any age, in a restaurant, in a car, in a kitchen, in the shower, in school, in pain or in trouble. Paul and Silas in the wretched prison, and they're singing for Pete's sake. They're sing- <laughs> That's their prayer. Their song is a prayer. They're singing praise to God. If they had known gospel songs, if this had been written, I think they'd probably been singing, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. I think we should have t-shirts that say no limits. And people come up and say, so you're going to be studly and work out at the gym? I said, no, let me, let me tell you what that means. That would be a fun thing. Anyway, some... Somebody came up to me after the last service and said, I have somebody who makes t-shirts. I'm going to make you one of those. What color would you like? I said, so praying for you. Finally, he puts words to dreams. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best, be pure and blameless to the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He draws us into fellowship. He dreams with us. And dreamers change their worlds, and sometimes they change the world. I close with this. Two things. When you pray for somebody, you do not set that person's value. They're already valuable to God. You acknowledge their value. When you say, I, I think you're valuable, and I want to bring your name to the creator of the universe this afternoon when I talk to him, that acknowledges your value. And finally, it fuels fellowship It identifies with the most high God. I'm not a great NBA basketball follower, but this thing has dominated the news in the last week. And on Friday night, the Los Angeles Lakers, for whom Kobe Bryant played for 20 years, then went on, retired three years ago, and there's this great dad by all counts. They wanted to honor him. So when the the LA Lakers played the Portland Trails Blazers, they walked in in every chair had a jersey with Kobe's number, either eight or 24. He had two numbers over the years. And when the teams were introduced, both teams walked out 
with Kobe's jersey, LA Lakers jerseys, both teams, with one of those numbers on it. And I'm saying, wow, that's really, that's something, that's honoring. And then they started to announce the players. And LeBron James, who was sort of one of Kobe's disciples and a huge name in NBA basketball, walks out. He's got the number 24 on. And they said, playing whatever, center four, is Kobe Bryant. Next guy walks out. They said, so-and-so, Kobe Bryant. Every member of every team, both teams, were introduced as Kobe Bryant. They were, they were that guy. When I pray, when we pray, we do that. Totally, they were totally identified with him. When we walk into the throne room and we pray to the Most High God, we totally identify with him. It sounds like Jesus when he's talking to the disciples about sending the Spirit, and he says, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Total identification. And when you go, my jersey, in the name of Jesus, I go. That's how that works. So 3,000 years ago, Isaiah encouraged us God's words to people to start this conversation with him. And it goes like this. Come now, let us settle the matter. Reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That, my friend, is the greatest conversation starter you'll ever have. He says, why don't we take care of the junk and let's go from here. My dream for me is this, and for you too. God, don't let prayer be some religious jargon. Do not let prayer be jargon or a burden to me. Show me the honor, the joy, and the delight of conversations with you. Let's bow our hearts and our heads. Just in this quiet moment, I'm not going to ask for raising of hands, but what I'd like you to do is how about we pray together? I'm just going to say a phrase. I'm going to talk to the Lord in short phrases, and if you would, it would be wonderful if you would just follow me out loud. Strong voices, if you would. If you're not comfortable, don't go there. Some of you may never have talked to a God you cannot see before, and this may be your moment, but let's do that together, and I'll just start, and you just follow me, short phrases. Dear God, you know me better than I know myself. I sit in your presence today with a hungry heart. Thank you for letting me talk with you. Thank you that you have taken my sin, my shortcomings, taken care of my history, and are giving me every day a future. Examine my heart, Lord Jesus. See if there be any particular thing in me that needs not to be there. Take it away. Thank you for giving me your joy. I exult in that. In your precious name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you.